Oh, what a joy to worship with you. And just to let you know, there are brothers and sisters in Abu Dhabi that are praying for our time together. They are lifting our time up to our glorious God. And I know others are praying as well. And we come expectant, right? Expectant for God to do a work here tonight and tomorrow for his glory and for our good. So if you could turn with me, we want to jump right in to the book of Habakkuk. And we are going to read Habakkuk chapter 1 together, and then we are going to go verse by verse through Habakkuk 1. Tomorrow we will be in Habakkuk 2 and 3. If you're pulling the Bibles from the table, it's page 940, if I am remembering correctly from just looking it up. I am using the ESV. That will be up on the screen, so it's just a, a bit different from the NIV, but it's super close. And true confession, ladies, that's the last time I'm going to say it like Habakkuk, because I am an American, and I tried really hard to shift it in my head, but we say Habakkuk, so that's, and I say it so many times. I tried, and I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this, and I'm going to keep so focused on trying to say Habakkuk that I'm not going to be focused on what I should be. So forgive me, I will do me, and it's going to be Habakkuk. So, all right, ladies. So let me read for us all the way through Habakkuk chapter 1, and then we will begin, and we're going to go verse by verse through this amazing little book in the Old Testament. And if you're still trying to find it in your own Bible, if you hit Matthew, go back if just very little. There's five little books, and you'll get to Habakkuk. All right, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Do you mind if I pray one more time as we walk through this chapter? Oh God, as we just read your word, it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Pierce our hearts. Do a work, God, through your holy, awesome word. In Jesus' name, amen. February 24th, 2022. A date when countless lives changed. Four months after that day, which was the beginning of the war between Russia and Ukraine, I had my first conversation with a missionary living in Ukraine. Her story is beautiful and it is heartbreaking. On our first call, she shared what led her to live and serve in that country. She'd been there for years, since 1997, and she described what it felt like the first time she landed there, how she felt like she was home. You could hear in her story how God had been guiding her steps. You could see the fingerprints of a sovereign good hand in it all. She would return after that first trip, learn the language and care for the oppressed. Her heart was burdened for the orphan, and she had this vision, this awesome dream of buying land, building homes on that land to bring gospel hope to the abandoned and the fatherless. After years of work, her dream was finally a reality. The money was raised, all the paperwork came through. She legally owned 10 acres and she could start moving forward to build. God had answered her prayer and the answers of all those who, who were supporting this. He had provided abundantly. But within a matter of weeks after the paperwork came through, everything changed. February 24th, 2022. And she was faced with a devastating decision. A convoy was leading the city, going westward toward Poland. And people were strongly encouraging her to go. What was she going to do? She didn't want to leave her home. She didn't want to leave the people that she loved, the children that she served, she didn't want to leave the land, the dream, what she had felt God had called her right there to do. She was torn with this decision she thought she would never have to make. And she didn't have much time to make that decision. The convoy was leaving. So she grabbed a few things out of her apartment, got into one of the cars to flee what was now a war zone. Why, oh Lord? Why put this burden on her heart? Why the years of work towards this goal? Why would the paperwork come through right at that point? Why the sorrowful ripple effect in so many lives? What's the point in all of that? There is this tension in our hearts when pain enters our lives 
or when we're looking at the injustice in this world, what are we to do with this tension? Have you ever asked this question, why, oh Lord, when the pain has entered your life? Has it ever felt like God is silent? Has it ever felt like God is distant and you wonder, God, are you there and do you even care? Because from my perspective, it seems like you aren't showing up at all in this. Have you ever been confused about God's goodness as you look around at all the injustice and evil in the world? When life is hard, questions often come. So how do we navigate the difficulties of life and the questions about God that can come in the midst of those difficulties? We all know this, sisters. Being a Christian doesn't mean that confusion and questions will never come. It doesn't mean that we will never have doubts about God and what he is doing. In fact, I would say that God purposefully brings us into that tension to do a work in our hearts with both precision and care to reveal more of himself and to draw us closer to him. This little book of Habakkuk is written to people living in an extremely difficult time. It's written to teach them and to teach us about who God is and how to live by faith when life is hard. Habakkuk takes us right into the eye of that storm in our hearts, into that, the center of that tension. When we look at what Scripture says is true about God, and we look at what's happening in our lives or in the world around us, and it doesn't always make sense. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, and what we are going to discover tonight and tomorrow in our time together that is that there is a treasure trove of hope to be found in the three chapters of this little book. But just a spoiler alert here. If you're looking for Habakkuk to have a neat and tidy resolution, a happy ending, maybe more like the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, that's not, not how this book ends. There is a hopeful ending, but the prophet is left with this reality. Life isn't going to get easier. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said, and if you've been with me, I've said this a number of times this week, John 16, in the world you will have trouble. The question we need an answer to is this, how do we live by faith when the trouble comes? So <clears throat> here's the flow of the book. The first two chapters of Habakkuk are a dialogue between the prophet and God. Usually prophets in the Bible speak the word of the Lord to people, but that's not what happens here. Habakkuk prays, God responds. Habakkuk prays a second time, and God responds again. And then Habakkuk sings. That's the flow of the book. And the reason for the dialogue at the beginning is that there is a crisis. Prophets in the Bible prophesy around times of crisis. Habakkuk is living in the midst of the crisis. He's crying out to God about it. And God responds in a totally unexpected way. And while we don't know almost anything about this prophet, we're going to see in this dialogue with God the struggle of a man trying to reconcile 
what he knows to be true of God with what is happening in his life and what's happening in the world around him. He is wrestling with God's character and God's ways. So let's jump back into Habakkuk and let's read the first two verses again. Verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. All that we really know about Habakkuk is in verse 1. He's a prophet and he received this weighty message, an oracle. And then in verse 2, the dialogue between the prophet and God begins. The prophet begins with a question. How long, O Lord? Habakkuk is confused, and he is crying out to God. One of the reasons I love this little book is that it begins with confusion, because I can relate to confusion. So here's what Habakkuk is asking in verse 2. How long will I cry out to you about how bad things are and you don't seem to hear? Lord, you're doing nothing. Where are you in this? And we get the impression from Habakkuk's question that this isn't just a one-time request. He has come to the Lord over and over again asking for help, asking God to step in and to intervene. He's trying to make sense of the silence of God. Have you been at that spot in your own life, trying to make sense of God's silence? Habakkuk here is wrestling with that reality in the midst of a crisis. So let's ask a question here. What is this crisis? What's going on? What is causing Habakkuk such turmoil in his heart? We saw in verse 2 that he says there is violence happening. And then let's look at the next set of questions he asks in verse 3. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? With these questions, the prophet is saying, Lord, I know you can do something, but you've chosen not to, and I don't understand why. Why are you tolerating all this sin? And then continuing on in verse 3, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Two times Habakkuk mentions that there is violence, and two times he mentions justice or a lack thereof. He's living in a community where there is violence and conflict. And those who should protect the powerless, those who should bring justice and keep things from getting out of control, aren't doing their job. The wicked surround the righteous. And we don't know the details of what is happening. But it is believed that Habakkuk lived during the time of King Jehoiakim of Judah. He was the son of Josiah. And his dad, King Josiah, was a good, God-fearing king who brought about reforms in Judah. It was the time of Josiah when the law was rediscovered in the temple and read to the people, calling them to turn back to the Lord and listen to the word of God. But Jehoiakim was an evil, idol-worshipping king who was placed there by the Pharaoh of Egypt after his father Josiah had been killed by the Pharaoh. Jehoiakim was a self-indulgent king who lived in luxury at the expense of his people. 
And look back at verse 4. Habakkuk writes something super interesting here. He says, the law is paralyzed. God's law given at Mount Sinai is literally numb. The law that proclaimed God's love for his people in rescuing them from slavery and commanded them to follow his word, that there would be blessings if they obeyed his word and curses if they disobeyed. This law is having no effect on the hearts of the people. So what do we know about the crisis? God's people are rejecting God's word and things are unraveling. Judah is in a free fall of idolatry, corruption, and chaos from the king on down. Now, before we continue in Habakkuk, we've got to ask this question. How did God's people get to this point? What happened for it to get so bad? So let's back up for a moment and get some historical context here. Let's back up to the time of King David in the Old Testament. God had promised a king for Israel. And King David, a man after God's own heart, takes the throne. It seems like Israel is reaching this high point. They are God's treasured possession now in the land he had promised under the rule of his chosen king. And David is a just king. But throughout his life, we see his glaring flaws and sin. Is this the promised king that Israel needs? And the answer is no. The Lord made a covenant with David at that time that there is another king coming in his line who is going to reign forever. That's the hope for Israel. After David's death, his son Solomon takes the throne. He's a wise king. Under his rule, the temple was built, symbolizing God dwelling with his people. This must be the high point. Solomon loved the Lord. But as an old man, his heart turned from God. He even built these high places, these places of worship on a mountain east of Jerusalem to make offerings and sacrifices to other so-called gods. After all that he did to build the temple of the living God in Jerusalem, what happened? Solomon is not the promised king that Israel needed. Then after Solomon things spiral in Israel. After his death, there is this vying for power, so the kingdom breaks into two. The northern kingdom, ten of the twelve tribes, under a series of evil kings not in the line of David, just spirals into idolatry. Until what God promised, if they would not listen to his word, happened. The superpower of Assyria invaded and took them into exile. The southern kingdom, after Solomon died, was made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it began under the oppressive rule of his son, Rehoboam. And they will follow right behind the brothers, their brothers in the north. There will be a few good kings, but most are evil. And the people follow the ways of their king. And the Lord warned Judah through the prophet Jeremiah during the time of Habakkuk. In Jeremiah 29, 19, the Lord says to his people, You did not pay attention to my words that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen. The time of the prophets is God calling his people to pay attention and to listen to his word to trust in his promises as they wait for the promised king. 
and it is a time of judgment for their sin. They will need to be rescued. They will need another exodus. They will need a better David to come and save them. So now let's place the time of Habakkuk in the redemptive storyline of the Bible. It is 400 years since King David lived. Habakkuk is in Judah after the fall of the northern kingdom in Assyria to Assyria. Things are looking hopeless. When will the king that Israel needs come? When will what you promised God actually happen? How long, O Lord? Habakkuk is not just feeling frustrated at his own circumstances. He's looking at how far the people of God have fallen, the wickedness, the violence, and the corruption and injustice, and he's crying out to God about it. All right, now that we have some of the historical context, before we look at God's answer to Habakkuk in verse 5, let's ask another question here. What can we learn from Habakkuk's prayer? What's interesting about this prayer is it has the feel of a psalm. Let me read the first verse of Psalm 10. Psalm 10 begins like this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 10 and Psalm 13 are psalms of lament. And Habakkuk's prayer is also a lament. So what can we learn from Habakkuk's prayer? We are going to learn about biblical lament. So first we need to know, just to ask another couple questions here, what is a lament? And then what do we learn about lament from verses 2 through 4? So what is a lament? The dictionary definition, it's an expression, it's a cry of deep grief or sorrow. But in the Bible, it is much more than that. Laments, whether in the Psalms or here in Habakkuk, are prayers. They are poetry that give voice to the pain that we experience and the emotions we feel living in a broken world. The laments in the Bible take us on a pathway toward trust and hope. God has given us laments in Scripture for when life is hard. And what we're going to see is that there is this process or is there is this movement to a lament from confusion to confidence, from fear to faith. One author, Mark Rogop, has written an excellent book on lament and he describes it like this. Lament in the Bible is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. He writes that lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And there are two questions that are often asked in a lament. Where are you and why is this happening? And that is exactly what Habakkuk is asking. Where are you in this, God, and why is this happening? When we read words like this prayer of Habakkuk in Scripture, I don't think it is just supposed to stay in our heads. We're not just supposed to think through this intellectually. I think it's supposed to make us feel something. And in this prayer, we feel the prophet's frustration. We feel his confusion and maybe even his fear. What do we learn about lament from verses 2 through 4? 
we learn two things. The first is that a lament involves turning to God. Habakkuk cries out to God. This is a cry of faith. When hardship enters our lives, we all turn somewhere. We are not neutral. There is a movement in our hearts. We either turn toward God, toward God or we will turn from him. And what I mean by that, it is so, that so often when things are hard and confusing, we do go silent before God. Whether we are angry or confused, maybe cynical or bitter, as we look at others' lives and compare them to our own, when we know that God could do something to change the circumstance, but he doesn't, where we turn in times of pain matters, sisters. We all turn somewhere. Habakkuk here turns to God in faith, believing that he exists, even though it feels like he isn't there, and believing that he needs God in this crisis, it is no small thing to turn to God and to continue to turn to God when life is hard. Sisters, that is an act of faith. So let me ask you a question. Where do you turn when pain enters your life? What happens in your heart when dreams you have about what life would be are not turning out the way you had hoped? Have you gone silent before God? Not because the discipline of prayer is challenging, but because you are discouraged and disappointed at what God is or isn't doing. Another quote, and I read this on Tuesday night, and it fits so well here. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying, they give up. Habakkuk is not at the point of hopeless resignation. He turns to God with his lament. That's the first thing we learn about lament. And the second thing we learn about lament is that it involves a complaint. Habakkuk brought his complaint to God. He has in his mind what he thinks God should be doing, and God just isn't doing it. So Habakkuk brings his specific concerns to the Lord. So here we see that lament involves turning to God, and it involves a complaint. Let's continue in verse 5 now. The Lord answers Habakkuk. The Lord says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The Lord commands Habakkuk and the nation of Judah to look, see, wonder, and be astounded. Lift your eyes up, Judah, from your immediate circumstances and see what I am about to do. And then he says, you wouldn't believe it if anyone else told you this. What do we learn about God in this response? He wasn't distant and disengaged when Habakkuk was crying out to him. And let me just say to those of you who feel like God is silent after years of praying for healing or praying for a particular situation or relationship in your life to change, God heard Habakkuk and he hears you. He is not passive or powerless. There was a purpose even in the silence. 
But God's ways from our perspective at times are perplexing, aren't they? So let's move on to verse 6 here. What is it that the Lord is going to do? This gets wild. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Lord is going to judge the sin of his people. And how he promises to do that is shocking. God is raising up the Chaldeans, and these are also called the Babylonians, to become an unstoppable superpower. What God is saying is that the situation now is about to go from bad to worse. It's going to get worse, Habakkuk, before it gets better. No one who prays to God wants an answer like that. And then the Lord goes on to describe the Babylonians and what they will do with vivid imagery. We're going to move through these verses quickly here. Look at verse 7. The Babylonians are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This verse is saying that they are the final authority on justice in their minds, not God, not anyone else, and they are feared. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They will come swiftly, and they are like a predator hunting its prey. Verse 9, they all come for violence, and they're all their faces forward like an advancing army. They gather captives like sand. So many will be captured, and they will be taken up with ease, like gathering up sand in your hand. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They're going to take whatever they want, whenever they want it. And they will laugh at the teeny, tiny, weak kings that can do nothing to stop them. And then verse 11 sums it all up. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. There is so much shocking about this. But I'm going to boil it down to three shocking things about God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer. The first shocking thing is what God says in verse 5. I am doing a work. Nations rise and fall under the sovereign, under God's sovereign rule and reign. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Whether it's a president, a sheikh, a prime minister, all their actions, all their decisions, ultimately under the sovereign will of God. Sisters, we can trust that no matter how troubling the times become in which we live, that God is in complete control. Even when it looks like things are so out of control. And that should impact the way we respond to what's happening in our lives and in the world around us. The second shocking thing is the instrument God uses. Verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. His instrument is a ruthless, arrogant, violent nation. 
And then the third shocking thing is that this is God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer about the violence in Judah. God is basically saying here that more violence is coming. God's answer to Habakkuk is unexpected and it is shocking. So let's listen now to the wisdom of the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones about God's response to the prophet's prayer. He says this, It is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. Sisters, God's ways are not our ways. But there is this glimmer of hope here, a promise for Habakkuk. In verse 11, 11, referring to the Babylonians, the Lord says, They are guilty men whose own might is their God. In another translation of this verse, uh, the NASB, it reads like this, But they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. The promise for Habakkuk is that justice is coming in the end. Now, let's read Habakkuk's response to God. Aren't you curious how Habakkuk responds to that? His second complaint as he tries to process all that God has just told him. Verse 12, we're going to read from 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make man, mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk can't believe what he's just heard. In Habakkuk's first complaint, he's, he was wrestling with the silence of God. Are you there? Do you care? And here he is wrestling with the ways of God. Isn't this unfair, O Lord? Habakkuk is not holding back. He's sharing what he feels with God. And he begins by speaking what he knows to be true of God. You are eternal and unchanging. You are the everlasting God. And then he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. This is covenant language. Habakkuk is crying out to his covenant-keeping holy God who has promised to be their God and that they would be his people, his treasured possession. Right after that, the prophet says, we will not die. In that exclamation, he is clinging to the fact that God made a covenant and he's not going to renege on it. He won't completely wipe out his people. And then we come to the heart of Habakkuk's complaint in verse 13. You who are of pure eyes, God, to even look at evil, how can you use a ruthless nation more wicked than your own people to be your instrument to deal with the sin of your people? 
How can you use the wicked to swallow up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk did want God to deal with the sin, but not like this. Judah might be bad, but these people are so much worse. And we see something else in Habakkuk's prayer. The prophet, even in his confusion, is acknowledging this truth about God. God, you are sovereign. Look at verse 12. You have ordained them for judgment and established them for reproof. Ordained, established. He knows who is in control here. But it is a perplexing providence. In verse 14, he says to the Lord, You make mankind like the fish of the sea. And then, going through verse 15 through 17, he describes the Babylonians like fishermen, bringing them up with a hook and gathering captives in a net. Before Babylon, they are like defenseless fish. Habakkuk knows God is sovereign, but this is so hard to wrap his mind around. And then we come to the prophet's last question in verse 17. Is he, is Babylon, then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will it ever end? Will the wicked swallow the righteous forever? Will evil always win and never be held accountable? Chapter 1 ends with this question. What we see about this man, Habakkuk, through this dialogue with God is that rather than the confusion pulling him away from God, he continues to turn toward God with his questions. Habakkuk's lament, his complaint, is not wallowing and whining. It's bringing his specific questions and frustrations to God in an honest way. Habakkuk knows exactly who he is talking to, the eternal, covenant-keeping, sovereign, holy God who is his rock. And he lays before the Lord his heart. I don't understand, Lord, how a holy God could be sovereign over something like this. Does that lament resonate with you? Our situations are different than Habakkuk's, but we all live in a broken world that is broken by sin. We've all seen and even felt the, the effects of injustice, of the sin that just goes unchecked, how it wreaks havoc on people's lives, in families, in marriages, in churches, in communities, in nations. Where I live in the UAE, I meet with women all the time who've hard stories of injustice from, and corruption from their home countries that has led them to move to the UAE, to leave their families with no plans to return all because of corruption and chaos. How long, O oh Lord, will it ever end? With that question in mind, we're going to press pause right here at the end of chapter 1. Kind of like we're pressing pause at the point in a movie where there still is so much left unresolved. Habakkuk has been questioning God's word and God's ways and he is waiting now for God to respond again. 
And from the prophet's prayer, we have learned something about biblical lament. It involves turning to God with our complaints. But in a lament, we don't stay in the complaint. A lament is this movement from confusion to confidence, from fear to faith. We have much more to learn about lament when we come to chapter 3. So I'm going to end here with a word from Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary who endured injustice and deep loss and was left with so many unanswered questions about God and his ways in her life. And she said this, Obviously, God has chosen to leave certain questions unanswered and certain problems without any solution in this life in order that in our very struggle to answer and solve, we may be shoved back and back and eternally back to the contemplation of himself and to complete trust in who he is. I'm glad he's my father. The prophet Habakkuk is being shoved back and back to consider the character of God, which will lead him, as we will see tomorrow, to a deeper trust in who God is. And that is the same for us. God is always at work, even when the darkness has veiled his lovely face. The question for all of us is, will we lift our eyes up? from the confusing and painful circumstances that come at times in our lives, to see him and put our complete trust in who he is while we wait. And sisters, what are we waiting for? Habakkuk was waiting for their promised hope, for the king that God had promised to come. And we have this amazing privilege of living on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back to his life, death, and resurrection. The promised king came. And now, sisters, we are waiting for our promised king, Jesus, to come again. We're going to continue tomorrow in Habakkuk 2. And we're going to pick up where we pressed pause in this dialogue between the prophet and God. There is so much more to see about who God is and how to live by faith when life is hard. Ah, let me pray for us, sisters, and then we're going to move into a time of discussion around our tables. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. I find this book challenging and even a bit confusing, oh God. But there is so much truth and hope in this little book of Habakkuk. Father, I pray that whatever from your word tonight needs to stick, that it would stick in our hearts, that it would go with us, that it would change us, oh God. Use this time as we share with one another uh, to continue to do the work in our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we are transitioning to table group discussion. How much time do we have? Should About 15 minutes. Lovely. Okay. So 
some instructions before you turn and discuss. There are some questions, that, well, a couple questions on the screen. The top two questions, what struck, what stuck? So you can answer that if you're just thinking, you know, I want to share just what struck me, something that stuck out to me, or something that sticks, something that you want to take away with you. You can share that. I've also provided two questions if it's helpful, just you want a little bit more just help in answering a question. There are two questions on the screen. You don't need to answer both of those. You can just answer the what stuck out to you, um, or you can grab onto one of those questions and answer that. So 15 minutes, and I believe Grace is going to come up to close us out. Is there anything else I need to share? Yes, get to know one another. And I know if there is time, and we're running a little short. I know we wanted to pray as groups. What do we think about that with the time? Yes, if you could save just a little at the end, five minutes even. If it, it might be better to kind of split in just because it's hard as a whole table. Whatever works for your table, um, that would be wonderful. Okay, ready? Break. Break.